Praise the Lord. So encouraging to, to hear our deacons pray. They're often the ones that are reading for us and thankful for what the Lord is doing in my brother Wes. Thankful for you. Definitely have seen the Lord work in you. Thankful for you. We're praying for you. The title of the message is Pursuing the Shepherd's Straying Sheep. Pursuing the Shepherd's Straying Sheep. Today we'll cover a passage that is, as mentioned in the prayer, often misused, misunderstood, abused, and neglected by many in evangelicalism. This makes it a passage we need to be extra careful to understand and and apply properly. The topic is obviously church discipline. Church discipline. Now, a few caveats have to be made uh, in order for us to get into this subject before we dive in. First, these words from Jesus are not meant to be a full discourse on how to deal with any and every sin in the church. You understand that? There are other passages that talk about types of discipline that happen within the church. These are, case, these are cases where steps may be shortened or cases where time is longer and that it might take a, a longer time than this passage might imply. Second, there are sins that aren't always dealt with by church discipline. Things such as an ill-timed remark that offends a person. Oh, well, i got to go discipline my wife tonight because she said some unkind little snip at me, got angry. That's, come on. We understand that this passage is not talking about a little snip or a little ill remark. Or it's obviously not talking about uh, somebody didn't love me enough. Somebody didn't serve me enough. The word enough should be the hint, right? Enough. Or a preference issue. This is not talking about a preference issue. Boy, that person sure does uh, dress with skinny jeans and they shouldn't be wearing skinny jeans at church. That's not what we're talking about. Do you understand? Okay? That's That's not what this church discipline is about. Beloved, we don't pull out the church discipline card every time we disagree with somebody in the church either. There are times we need to let love cover a multitude of sins. Even without a confrontation. You realize that if you've examined your heart at all in the last week or two, you would say if you were confronted for everything that you ever thought bad in that week or two, you'd be confronted all the time, wouldn't you? If someone is five minutes late to an appointment with you, it might be impolite. But sometimes it may mean just letting it go and giving grace. Does that mean that we're always doing this? And is there ever a a time for confronting people if they're late? Well, yeah, sure. There's 
a good discourse that can be happened if somebody is constantly all the time late and they're saying they're going to be there and they're not there. Do you understand that this takes wisdom and it takes abiding in the Lord? In other words, you just can't take this little paradigm, this pattern, and just throw it on every single thing that offends you. That's not the point of it anyway. Third, just because church discipline has been abused and misused doesn't mean we should not practice it anymore. It should be practiced. Instead, we should practice it in a biblical, God-glorifying way. Legalistic practices from the past don't mean we throw out any passage that references to holding people accountable. Do you understand that? See, that's the... That's that whole problem again where legalism leads to what? Avoidance completely of not following the Bible? We can't go there. At the same time, we must be careful to make our discipline just another form, uh, not make it just another form of self-righteous works, righteousness. The biblical way of practicing church discipline is clearly laid out by Jesus in this passage. I hope that as we cover this passage, we will be encouraged to see church discipline for what it really is. It's this. It's this. The loving pursuit of the the good shepherd's strange sheep through the means of his disciples. That's what church discipline is. The loving pursuit of the good shepherd's strange sheep through the instrument of his disciples. Seeking restoration, right? That's the purpose to restore people so let's look at this passage again and we break down our passage into three main characteristics of biblical church discipline here's how we're going to do it there's the context for church discipline the chronology of church discipline or for church discipline and finally the conditions for church discipline they come from the context and the passage so let's start with the context for church discipline. What is the context? Well, the context is the whole sermon, the message. It's very important. Often when church discipline is described, it's taken out of the message as a whole that Jesus was giving. It was taken out of that and then applied. Well, the problem is is that if you don't see it in the context of the whole sermon and the whole section that he's talking about, you're going to miss the whole point of church discipline. You're going to miss what he's even saying. We can't take it out of its context without understanding what it means. Jesus explains the need for discipline with a group of his followers in a sermon, in a message, in a dialogue between him and his disciples that started with the what? It started with an argument over who is the greatest. It started with the argument, who's the greatest in your kingdom? Remember, they were arguing, and he knew that they were arguing about who's the greatest. So this is a sermon on how disciples should treat one another. Treat one another as fellow believers. Receive one another like a child. Verse 4, it states it. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So the idea is, is what? Receive them as a child, a little child. There's obviously compassion and mercy here, right? There's gentleness and grace. It's recognizing the vulnerability of your fellow disciple. 
That's what's in the mind. That's in the passage. That's in the message. Why is that important? Well, if you don't have that in mind as you go into church discipline, you're going to mess the whole thing up. If you're arguing about who's the greatest and then you go in and say, I think I'm going to confront this person. You're basically what? Right on the edge of pride. Right on the edge of pride. This is a sermon that states the importance of not causing anyone to stumble. That's what he had talked about in Matthew 18, 7. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. So definitely, that would include even in our church discipline, right? We should not be wanting anybody to stumble and we should be wanting no one in the church to cause somebody else to stumble. Because we should have the glory of Christ in mind, the glory of God in mind, and we should be thinking this way. This is a sermon that emphasizes honoring one another as fellow children of God. See to it that none of you despise one of these little ones. Verse 10. This is a sermon that expressed the heart of the good shepherd for his strange sheep. Look at verse 12 to 14. This is what we left off with. Remember, the shepherd goes out for the one strange sheep. This is the love of God on display that he would go out for that one strange sheep and care for that one strange sheep at all costs. So what do we see? We see, so it is in verse 14, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So, what is this? This is a value for every single person that's in the congregation of believers. There's a valuing of them. A concern for them. No one drops through the cracks in God's economy. In God's children, He cares for every single soul. And this is the context for what? Talking about church discipline. So important. It's not, it's not people need to act like me. And people need to be like me. And people need to agree with me. So if they don't, I'm going to church discipline them. It's a concern for the little ones. A love for everyone. And finally, this is a sermon that emphasizes forgiveness. That's what we'll talk about next time. And how amazing it is, and and it'll probably be a two-part series, because forgiveness is something that we all need to understand and apply all the time. And it's interesting that Peter kind of makes the sermon go longer by asking another question. How How many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Right after church discipline's talked about. Hmm. Right after church discipline? See, this is the emphasis. It's on forgiveness. Matthew 18.35, notice, look what it says at the end. In 18.35 it says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So forgiveness is important. This is the context. This is the context of church discipline. Why is this important? All of this shows the heart behind the person that is seeking the strange sheep. So important. Matthew 18, 22. I do not say to you, forgive 
seven times, but 70 times seven, right? Ultimately, this sermon is, sermon is all about loving others more than ourselves, isn't it? That's what church discipline is. Did you hear me? Church discipline is loving others more than ourselves. Disciples of Jesus must put other disciples of Jesus above themselves. We are more, we are more concerned for others than ourselves and our own advancements. We die to self and avoid causing others to stumble. We show honor to God's children, no matter how insignificant they may be in this world. We seek strange sheep, just as the Good Shepherd sought us when we were straying. Biblical love for one another includes seeking the sheep who are in sin. This is a fact. Biblical love includes going to those in sin and confronting them and calling them to return to the protection and security of the shepherd's fold. Hear me, beloved. Listen closely. Love is often, in this world, pitted against discipline. Do you hear me? It's pitted against it. If you confront, you don't love me. If you discipline, you don't love me. But the opposite is true. If you don't discipline and you don't confront somebody that is in sin, you are not loving them. You are saying, I don't care about you. In our society, discipline is frowned upon, isn't it? Do you not see our society falling apart? I'll never forget when I was in high school, one of the reasons why I tried to stay in line. Tried to stay in line. I was a lost man. Okay? Is one reason, one reason, you know what it was? It was the paddle that hung in the principal's office. I knew it was there. I had heard rumors about that paddle. I knew if I did something bad, I could get my little frail body spanked by a paddle. Discipline kept me in line. But nowadays, you can't even look cross at a child. You can't be stern with them. You have to use some pronoun that doesn't even fit with who they are because you might offend them and you know what's going to happen we're going to have a society that does what's right in their own eyes and we oh it's going to be you think it's bad now we think it's bad now It's the most unloving, unkind thing we could do to our children. But then there's those cases where people have used corporal punishment and beat their children. And so what they do is is they, our society uses that as the scapegoat to say no discipline at all. Oh, beloved. If you become a child of God, if you are a child of God, you will be disciplined. You will be. How do I know? Because the Bible says it. Hebrews 12. 
Hebrews 12.4 states, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Boy, that would include all of us, right? And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. Scourges? Every son? Yo. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, in America, a lot. Sadly, that's in a pagan society. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, it seems best to them. But He, that is God, disciplines us for the moment, seems not joyful, not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by God's discipline... Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How many of you... uh, I bet you won't raise your hand fast on this one, but how many of you want to be righteous? You just asked for a spanking from God. Right? So we come to a passage like Matthew 18... And the context of the whole New Testament is screaming that this is what's going to happen. And I know you come to a church and you think, well, I've been told that church is the place where I just feel good about myself all the time. Well, you're at the wrong church. I'm sorry. You say, well, Pastor Mike, you just like making people feel bad. No! I just want people to find their joy in Christ because He is better than life. Knowing my sins are forgiven and that Christ is enough and He's better than anything this world offers is a good thing. And I have your best interest at heart. And the Word has your best interest at heart. And being a member of Grace Bible Church, everybody in the church has your best interest at heart. Because that's what we covenant to do as a church family, right? To love one another. Exhorting, rebuking, confronting, correcting. Because it's all part of discipleship. Jesus' words in Matthew 18 are repeated throughout Scripture. Here are just a few references. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you are... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, even those that you admonish. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that he will be put to shame. 
Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Most likely the ones he's talking about was in First Thessalonians says if you don't work, you don't eat. Right? So the lazy person that was not working and providing for his house, he was sitting up on a hill saying, Hey, maybe the Lord's coming back. Y'all provide for me. Person that was lazy and not working and not providing for his family was to be rebuked. And he writes Second Thessalonians and he brings up the same condition, the same problem, and then says, You should what? Give them space, in other words. Not show them the hand of fellowship as much because you're not listening to what the Word of God has told you to do. Yet, at the same time, not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Come on, brother. Come on. Get a job. Go to work. You're supposed to be providing for your family. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Titus 3.10 Reject a factitious or a factious man. Not a factitious. A factious man. After a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. This is a divisive man. If somebody's divisive, what are you supposed to do? Avoid it. Avoid him. Reject him. Friends, discipline in the new covenant life of the believer is what we're about. This is what we do. We live in these bodies of death, right? And all these passages in the New Testament epistles are after the Spirit's come. So do you think we all have a problem? Yeah, we need to hear this over and over and over and over again all the time. Now, if we're... Not like a little child, though. Hear me. Hear me closely. If we're not like a little child that the sermon in Matthew 18 started with, then what's going to happen when somebody comes to rebuke us? What happens when somebody comes and rebukes you? If you're not acting like a little child, being as a little child humble, then what do you do? You take it personally, and your pride flares up, and you say... Who are you to talk to me like that? I'm not a little child. Whoa, 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 whoa. You were told to be a little child. Isn't it ironic that that little phrase happens that way? Hmm. Church discipline only works with a humble body of believers that are acting as little child children. Not, you know what I mean, not as disobedient little children. But a humble, teachable person. That's all of us. That should be all of us, right? Church discipline will not work without it. If we think, I should do what's right in my own eyes, then we're not going to like passages like today. But when we need confrontation and discipline, what we need, rather, and comfort is confrontation and discipline. Why do we need this correction and discipline? Ultimately, it's because anything that we choose that's above God is ultimately bad for us and it will hurt us. Our joy is found in God and God alone. 
We want to choose God above everything else. And because He's the fullness of joy, He's the fountain of joy, that's where we need to seek. And that's who we need to seek. And who needs discipline? Every single disciple of Jesus needs discipline. It's very interesting to me that Peter was one of the apostles that was hearing this. And we're reading through Galatians in our, in our reading. It was very interesting that Peter, even after Acts 2, what happens, what does Paul do in Galatians chapter 2? It's recorded. He rebuked Peter publicly. And you know what he rebuked him for publicly? For sitting with the Hebrews. And acting like the Gentiles were no longer just equal people. Boy, that's a rebuke. Publicly he did it, it appears. Even the apostles needed to be rebuked. So if the apostles needed to be rebuked, how many of us in the room need to be rebuked? All of us. Now obviously, we all don't need the four rounds of church discipline every time. Thankful, aren't you? But a private exhortation or rebuke from a brother or sister is probably something every believer receives regularly. Ooh, it's weird. Everybody should be receiving these rebukes regularly. How about you? Are you getting rebuked regularly? <laughs> is somebody calling you to account regularly? Say, no, I've arrived. Whoa. No, nobody tells me anything. I wonder why. I wonder why you're not being rebuked. Hmm. Why is it? Maybe we're just staying too far away from other people that they can't really see who we are. Maybe that's us, right? All you, all you see about me is my social media, and I can paint a good picture there. Or, or maybe we haven't responded to correction very well in the past, and so <laughs> nobody dares confront you in anything because they know they'll face the ire of your anger. Hmm. Maybe the problem is, is that we don't want church discipline. We don't want to be humbled. Then I guess we're back to the first part of the message, right? That Jesus gave. Maybe we don't want to be a child. Beloved, we are all sinners. Justified by faith. Declared right by God. Because of what Christ Jesus did. All of you that have repented and believed in Him, you are right with God because of Christ. Praise God, right? But we still are in the process of being sanctified. And we're dying daily. Interestingly enough, church discipline and forgiveness are right there back to back. If perfection was the life of the believer in the New Testament, 
we would not be, it would not be filled with imperatives telling us to avoid this sin and avoid that sin and avoid this sin. So God uses us, each of us, in each other's lives, and this is the context in which he gives his message to the disciples that need it. So the context of the message on church discipline was a sermon, a loving one another sermon as fellow little ones. The chronology of the discipline breaks down in 15 to 17. There's a sequence of events Jesus encourages his disciples to follow in correcting one another. This sequence of events does not cover every circumstance mentioned, as I mentioned, in the church. There are times when confrontation and expulsion is quicker. An example would be a false teacher. If somebody came in and started proclaiming to all in the church a false doctrine, guess what? We're going to step up real quick, the elders are, and we're going to expel that person from the church. Is it going to be like a private discussion? Well, not if he's announcing it and bold in it and he says, I don't care, then you're going right to page four. And there are even times when sin isn't confronted, as I mentioned, things, those little things. Say, those little things? Yeah, those little things, they're there. You have them, don't you? But as a general pattern for dealing with sin in a fellow believer, Jesus gives this chronology of events. Notice it doesn't start with, go tell someone what someone else did mean to you. Did you hear me? It doesn't start with, maybe I should get some, and we call it this, maybe I should get some wisdom from somebody else on how I should deal with this person. What's wrong with that? Oh, before you know it, you're right into gossip. You're throwing people under the bus. Interestingly enough, we have a rule in our house. <laughs> it's, a home, it's, a, it's a rule that I think I have repeated in my house. Oh, it's got to have been 5,000 times. A lot of times. We've repeated this rule over and over and over again. It's this one. If you have a problem with your brother and sister... Go to them to directly and ask them, will you please stop doing what you're doing to me? And if they don't, then come to mommy and daddy and tell us. But way too often, they skip step one. Mommy! Or in a deep voice, Mom! Instead of directly confronting in a gracious way and asking them nicely to please stop, the tattletale comes, right? My kids don't do that. No, I think everybody that's ever lived knows all about what I'm talking about, right? But this rule is patterned after Jesus' instruction. If somebody offends you and does something wrong or you see them in sin, pray and privately go to them. That's what he says. That's where he starts. Notice it says, step one in church discipline. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If your brother's sin, if your brother's sin, 
doesn't mean it's unlikely. It, it, that's not what he means by the if. It means when it happens, follow these instructions. <laughs> this is sin, not a preference, as mentioned. This is a direct opposition to God. This is a sin against God. There is some debate whether it is a sin against the brother or sister directly. There's a little bit of debate on that, and some of your versions might say if your brother sins against you. I don't think it was in the original manuscript, but either way, either way, a sin against God is what's in view, I believe. This definitely includes sins against each other. And notice it says, go and show him his fault in private. There's a need for privacy. There's a need for direct person-to-person confrontation and conversation. There's a need for specific details of the sin. There's a need for direct exhortation. In this first step, Jesus gives both the positive response and the negative response to that rebuke, right? The positive response is described as listening to the confronting brother. To listen to a rebuke is to hear it and respond to it. It's not just hear it, but it's a hear it and embrace it. That's what he means by listen. It is described further by Jesus. Look at it. It says, as winning your brother. You've won your brother if he listens and embraces To win your brother is to have the brother turn back to God. Do you understand that that's what it means to win them? Restoration. That's the goal, isn't it? That's the purpose of church discipline. It's to win them back to God. That they will find their joy and satisfaction in God again. And this is, by the way, the goal of all church discipline, if it's accurate church discipline. If it's not done this way then the goal really is to win them to what? Agree with you. And that's not what we're talking about. It's not about you. It's about their joy in Christ and God being glorified. It's not about our own exaltation or even our own retribution. Do you hear me? In other words, if we confront somebody and we're coming to them in private and we say, you know, you really hurt me. That really, really hurt me. And I need you to make up for it. Then really our our concern is not with their soul. Our concern is with our own offense. Our own offended hearts. You know, it's amazing to me that often people talk, when we get into the forgiveness things, that it's all about the person's repentance. I'll forgive them if they repent. You know the problem with with people when they say this, not problem with repentance, repentance is a good thing, that we're all sitting there going, we have a tendency to sit there and go, I don't know, is that repentance real or not? Do you really mean you're sorry? Maybe you should do something up for it. Beloved, it's not about winning people to get them to make up for what they did to you. Because after all, we've been forgiven by for so much more. If we're holding accounts of everything that everybody's done wrong to us, we're in trouble. 
Do you understand that often church, church discipline is used as a beat stick to get people to make up and do what, they, what we want them to do? That's not what church discipline is. The purpose is to win them to Christ, to have them to enjoy God again. And that's why we do it in private. So it's not about us. We are doing it and we're going over here and we're doing this quietly so that we don't make a big spectacle. We don't make it about us confronting somebody else. Now, if they did offend us personally, it would be great if they apologized and that's a good thing. But at the same time, we must also trust when a person says, hey, I'm sorry, we don't need to over-introspective, be over-introspective in them. We need to be quick to forgive. Friends, we're not ready to confront if it's all about ourselves. That's not church discipline. Next in the chronology of events, you get the negative reaction and what happens. Step two, but if he does not listen to you, whoa, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So, if the brother has fallen into sin and doesn't listen when you confront them, then the disciple maker is supposed to bring another one or two witnesses of the sinful circumstance. This does imply that the sin is not just a snippy comment or a harsh word, doesn't it? This is probably a major sin, a sin that causes major problems for the offender and possibly the honor of Christ's bride, the church. Friends, remember, context points to sin that causes others to stumble. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. That's the kind of sin he's talking about, right? He's not talking about a harsh look. Or not saying hello to you yesterday. He's talking about a heart problem, a major heart problem. I think we see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. These are the kind of things. Paul is confronting the Corinthians and calling specifically people out that have fallen back into major sins. The sins of what? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of a God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This would be the kind of sin, a lifestyle sin, that they should not be participating in if they're believers. Now, does that mean that we never confront for... A harsh word. If somebody said something, no, that's not true either. Yes, we should talk to them. But that's communicating and and encouraging and, and being humble and admitting your own areas where you could have been gentle and gracious and kind. But should you call the elders because your husband, your husband said an unkind word to you two days in a row? No, come on. Come on. I think we're talking about lifestyle things where you should gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Causing stumbling of other believers. By the way, if there's anyone in here that is caught up in one of these sins, 
Here's your exhortation. (laughs) Repent of this. Turn from this. Trust in Christ. If you're stealing from your boss, repent of that. Trust in Christ. He came to die for sinners. People that are stuck in these kind of sins, idolatry. This is bad. Does not honor God. Does not glorify God. And it's not good for you. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 19. Most likely pointing to the idea of that you need witnesses before you call people. It says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. I think he's quoting from this to show what kind of sin. Again, a grievous sin. Next, Jesus moves to the person that rejects the small group, the next chronology of events. Step three in discipline, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, he starts to shorten it and not give all the details. Have you noticed? The first time he said, if he does this, then great. If not, then this. The next time he says, if this, and just goes right to the rejecting. There's obviously, if two or three people go and they turn and repent, there's also a win, right? You've won them back to the Lord. That's a good thing. He just kind of took some of it out. He's short-forming it, right? Now he's short-forming it even more. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Goes right to the negative response. Tell it to the church. What's the church supposed to do? Well, I'd argue there are four steps to church discipline based on this text and based on a short form. Not three steps. A lot of people say three steps. I think it's four steps. I think the first step is what? Private. Second step is what? Two to three people. The next step is what? Tell it to the church. And then the church should be doing, it's assumed in this passage, the church should do what? Call that person. Everybody goes to that person and calls them to repentance. And then finally there's a fourth step. The fourth step, if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, this implies that the gathered believers are mature enough that they're going to respond appropriately and as they go and they confront somebody, they're going to do it with love and gentleness and grace, treating them as a child, a little one, a child of God. So you get it? The chronology of events? Beloved, it's very, very important for us to see. What exactly does it mean here then at the last step? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Man, this is really cool. As I was studying through this, I saw something I've never seen before. It's really cool. It did mean that rejecting believers was no longer considered a part of the covenant family. We'll talk about this in a second. In other words, they're to be considered not part of the church anymore. But it didn't mean the disciples never spoke to the person again. It doesn't mean that. Yes, there were some distance. There is some distance that happens when somebody is put outside the church and outside the fellowship. But all believers see the lost as opportunities to what? Share the gospel with them. Share the gospel with them and call them to repentance. 
always hoping that God could work in their lives, right? So at that point, we're thinking maybe they're not believers and we put them outside the church. They're no longer a part of the fellowship. But we're still treating them with the idea that hope God could maybe save them. You know, I was thinking on this this week. Who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew. He's a tax collector. He was a tax collector. Very interesting. None of the other Gospel accounts have this passage. Only Matthew writes this. Very interesting. Because here is a guy, he's recording what Jesus said about how you're supposed to treat them as tax collectors. And he was a tax collector. What is the point? I don't think that Matthew was saying, treat them, dishonor them, treat them horribly. I think he was saying, look, treat them like, and Jesus obviously was saying this, Treat them like somebody that's an unbeliever outside of the covenant family, but there's hope for that person. There was hope for Levi. There was hope for Matthew because God called him and he repented and he believed and he's writing these words. So to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector was to say they're outside of the fellowship, they're outside of the family now, but I'm still going to love them and I'm still going to point them to Christ. I know that brings up some really interesting questions, doesn't it? Do you invite them to church? Well, I thought they're not supposed to go to church. They're not supposed to be a part of the church. Yeah, that does. It does messy it up a little bit, doesn't it? Well, I don't think you're, I, I don't think, I don't think he's saying that you never talk to him. I don't think he's saying that. And I don't think he's saying that you never offer hope to him. That would be wrong too, right? But I don't think that he says, when you're having the Lord's Supper, invite them on over. Include them in the fellowship. Because that wouldn't make sense either, right? Ultimately, I think we're supposed to offer them hope of the gospel and call them to repentance. Usually what happens, how many of you found this, we found this in church discipline, sadly, is that when somebody's put out, they don't want anything to do with you anyway. Now, all of this needs to be put in context, the condition for the church discipline. We need to understand that when we do this, the condition is is that we are working as Christ's representative, as a church. Notice Jesus says to him in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So what's the point? Jesus had said something similar to Peter, and after Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God... That's when Jesus had told him this. And the point was there and is here similar. Jesus is the apostle, or is saying, is with the apostles in their ministry of making disciples. And when you say a person's right with God and they're in fellowship, then they're right with God and they're in fellowship. But if they're not right with God and they're in rebellion, 
then they're outside. They're bound. And the same goes by application to the other disciples and ultimately to what? His church. To us. By application it goes. Now I know there's some really sticky things in church history that have messed up anathemas and all these things. But the true church, the biblical church, does this and we are representatives of Christ. And if you happen to be church disciplined out because of a sin that you did not repent of, then obviously this is the Lord's way of saying what? You're in rebellion to me. You need to repent and believe. The second condition is seen. Notice, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that I may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. How many of you have heard that prayed before? (laughs) Almost everybody, right? We've heard that prayed and it's, it's like this. Lord, you say where two or three are gathered in your name, you're in their midst. Right in the prayer? It's not talking about that. It's talking about Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, 19. My mind is going blank. Deuteronomy 19, sorry. It's bringing that concept back up. The idea that if you are in agreement, you have two or three, you're together, and you understand that there's a problem, then God is with you in this. Seek Him. Seek the Father. And as you seek the Father, He is the one that can bring about what? Restoration for the one that's in rebellion. That's the point. So is there an element of prayer to it? Absolutely. But it's more about the discipline process. It's about the process of a a strange sheep. We're praying for the what? The Father to work in the strange sheep to call them back and to use us to confirm this and call this and call them to repentance. Use us to establish the body of Christ as pure and holy and blameless and God-glorifying. So I want to close with one point. I think this is a call for church membership here too. You say, what? Where's church membership in this? There's no church membership in this verse. I don't see any church membership in this verse. Okay? I understand it does not use the phrase church membership. But it does talk about loving your one another. This is how you love one another. Church membership, church membership is a covenant agreement between two parties that says, I'm for you. I'm going to live to honor you and love you and honor God and point you to Christ. I'm going to treat you like one of God's little ones. And that's what we do when we join Grace Bible, right? You're a part of this church. You're saying, I agree to have you speak into my life and say what? If there's sin, please point it out. Show me. Go to me privately and talk to me. I want to get out of that sin. If I'm in sin and I don't see it, call me out. At the same time, it's a what? Call to the same. It's, if I join, I want you to speak into my life. In fact, you're saying, in effect, 
I want you to discipline me. Did you hear me? Boy, that'll make nobody join the church, right? I want you to hang the paddle on the wall. Really? Yeah, but it's going to be in love and it's going to be grace and you're going to do it with gentleness and you're going to be encouraging one another. It's not going to be a stern, ugly rebuke. We're going to do it because we love you and we want to point you to Christ. How do you become a part of that? Well, first you've got to be a believer, right? You've got to repent of sin and trust in Christ. And then you're baptized. And when you're baptized, you're obeying Christ. You're showing that you identify with Him. And then after you're baptized, guess what? You become a member of the church. This church. And this church then does what? We love you. And you love us. And part of that love is exhorting, rebuking, encouraging. And if you're not getting that from us, some of it is on us. We need to get closer. And some of it might be on you. You need to get closer. So plug in more. Seek it more. Ask for accountability. Do you have somebody praying for you in the church? Do you have somebody exhorting you in the church? Is somebody actually calling you to repentance in the church? Listen, beloved, it's very easy for you to fall into a church even this size. We don't want that. We want you to be a part of this church. We all need to be in each other's lives, loving each other, exerting each other, encouraging each other, because we're all little ones, aren't we? We all need Christ, don't we? And we all sin regularly, don't we? And we need each other. By the grace of God working through us, we represent Christ and we help each other. So this is what church discipline is. Let's go practice it, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us in Christ. Lord, we understand that we are still in these bodies of death and still prone to sin, prone to wander, prone to stray as sheep. We pray that you will help people to be in our lives that can confront us and to encourage us and call us back to you. Lord, give us teachable hearts, humble hearts that are willing to be corrected. And at the same time, Lord, give us boldness and courage to go ahead and speak into other people's lives graciously, gently, kindly, exhorting, rebuking, encouraging, Encouraging the faint-hearted, encouraging the weak, the hurting, but at the same time exhorting and rebuking those that are in sin. Help us, Lord, now as we go to walk in the grace of Christ, to understand the gospel and apply it to our hearts, and to enjoy you with fullness of joy. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.